Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the June 2010 podcast. Sarah Forge will read the abstracts and I will return with some commentary. The first paper this month is Spirometry Training Does Not Guarantee Valid Results by Borg et al. Nurses and physiotherapists from rural health facilities chosen by their local area health service undertook a 14-hour spirometry course facilitated by respiratory scientists with at least five years' experience. Participants consented to on-site reviews at five, seven, and nine months after the course. Participants were assessed for adherence to the American Thoracic Society, or ATS, acceptability and repeatability criteria by undertaking an assessment of spirometry on a naive subject and a retrospective review of a selection of spirometry results at each site at the visit. Further education was provided following the reviews at five and seven months. Fifteen participants from ten sites were available for all three visits. The prospective phase revealed poor adherence to ATS criteria at five months, though this improved over the study period with follow-up training. Forty percent at five months, sixty-seven percent at seven months, and eighty-seven percent at nine months. The retrospective review showed that 41%, 58%, and 58% of the tests at 5, 7, and 9 months respectively met the ATS criteria and had correctly selected the best test. The authors concluded that a 14-hour spirometry training course alone does not provide sufficient skill to perform spirometry to ATS criteria, and short-term follow-up is an essential component for improving test validity. Next, we have the paper by Kempanen et al. Comparison of settings used for high-frequency chest wall compression in cystic fibrosis. The objective of this study was to determine whether high-frequency chest wall compression with higher pressure settings combined with variable mid-frequencies, so-called higher pressure variable frequency chest wall compression, results in greater sputum expectoration than a lower pressure mid-frequency approach. This was a controlled randomized crossover study. 16 clinically stable adult CF patients participated. Patients performed airway clearance with high-frequency chest wall compression, once each with lower pressure mid-frequency approach and higher pressure variable frequency approach, on separate occasions. All sputum produced during each session was collected. Patients completed pulmonary function tests before and after each session. Median sputum wet weight was greater with the higher pressure variable frequency approach than with the lower pressure mid-frequency approach. Dry sputum weight differences did not reach statistical significance. The higher pressure variable frequency approach and lower pressure mid-frequency approach resulted in similar increases in FEV1 and forced vital capacity. Post-therapy sputum viscoelastic properties did not differ. Patients perceived the two regimens as equally comfortable and effective. The authors concluded that, in adult CF patients, a single session with a higher pressure variable frequency approach resulted in greater sputum expectoration by wet weight, but not other differences compared to the commonly used lower pressure mid-frequency settings. 
The paper, Patient Satisfaction During Endobronchial Ultrasound-Guided Transbronchial Needle Aspiration Performed Under Conscious Sedation, is by Steinfort and Irving. Consecutive patients undergoing endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle aspiration under conscious sedation completed a self-administered questionnaire two to four hours after the procedure. Satisfaction was determined by patient willingness to return for the procedure in the future. Patients also reported degree of recall of the procedure and any distressing symptoms. Procedural data and complications were also recorded. 41 patients underwent endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle aspiration with no serious complications. The combinations and doses of intravenous sedative agents varied widely. Patient satisfaction was extremely high, with 98% of patients reporting they would definitely return for this procedure in the future if required, and one patient reporting they would probably return for such a procedure. The authors concluded that endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle aspiration may safely be performed under conscious intravenous sedation and is associated with very high patient satisfaction. The effects of simulated airway diseases and affected flow distributions on aerosol deposition is by Apayus Berlia et al. The objective of this study was to evaluate to what extent the uneven flow distributions produced by the physical manifestations of respiratory diseases affect the deposition patterns of inhaled aerosolized drugs. Diseases were simulated by constrictions and blockages, which caused uneven flow distributions. Respiratory conditions of sedentary and pronounced activities, and of particle sizes ranging from 0.1 microns to 10 microns, were used as the basis for calculated deposition patterns. Findings are presented that describe flow as a function of airway disease state. Data on the effects of lung morphologies, healthy and diseased, on compartmental and local aerosol deposition are also given. By formulating these related factors, modeling results show that aerosolized drugs can be effectively targeted to appropriate sites within lungs to elicit positive therapeutic effects. These results demonstrate that respiratory diseases may influence the deposition of inhaled drugs used in their treatment in a systematic and predictable manner. The next paper is Utilization of Positive Pressure Devices for Breathing Exercises in the Hospital Setting, a Regional Survey in Sao Paulo, Brazil, by Fiore et al. The objective of this study was to evaluate the extent of the use of breathing exercises with positive pressure devices by physiotherapists in Sao Paulo, Brazil. A list of hospitals located in the city of Sao Paulo was obtained through the Municipal Secretary of Health. Physiotherapists at 43 hospitals were surveyed about their use of exercises with positive pressure devices in patients after abdominal, thoracic, and cardiac surgery, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, patients with pneumonia, and patients with neuromuscular disease. 120 physiotherapists responded to the questionnaire.
All the respondents used breathing exercises with positive pressure devices in their clinical practice, with all types of patients addressed in the questionnaire. The devices most frequently used were continuous positive airway pressure and intermittent positive pressure breathing. The most frequently cited indications for positive pressure breathing exercises were atelectasis and oxygenation impairment. The authors conclude that, despite a lack of evidence of benefit for breathing exercises with positive pressure in the hospital setting, this type of intervention is extensively used in the clinical practice for a wide variety of patients and conditions. The paper, Effect of Educational and Psychological Intervention on the Quality of Life of Asthmatic Patients, is by Sun et al. The objective of the study was to evaluate the effects of educational and psychological intervention on the quality of life and psychological status of patients with asthma. The 228 patients in the study group received education and psychological counseling in addition to conventional pharmacotherapy for asthma. The 146 patients in the control group received standard therapy for asthma. The authors assessed quality of life, mood states, and asthma knowledge before and after the educational and psychological intervention. The study group's mean quality of life score was higher than that of the control group immediately after the intervention and three months after the intervention. The study group's mean asthma knowledge score was higher immediately after the intervention and three months after the intervention. Two weeks after the intervention, the mean increment of asthma knowledge score in the study group was greater than that in the control group. The study group's mean profile of mood states score was lower than that of the control group immediately after the intervention and three months following the intervention. The authors conclude that education and psychological counseling improves the quality of life and alleviates the psychological distress in patients with asthma. The Borg scale is accurate in children and adolescents older than 9 years with cystic fibrosis, is by Hammerding et al. The objective was to evaluate the accuracy of the modified Borg scale to estimate lung impairment measured via FEV1 in children and adolescents with cystic fibrosis. This cross-sectional prospective study was conducted with cystic fibrosis patients 6 to 18 years old. With the modified Borg scale, the authors evaluated subjective perceptions of dyspnea before and after submaximal exercises and its correlation with lung function, spirometry, six-minute walk test, and nutritional status according to body mass index. Forty-one patients were included in the study. The modified Borg scale correlated weakly with the other variables when all patients in the sample were analyzed. There was a significantly greater correlation of the Borg scale score with FEV1% and with 6-minute walk test when patients older than 9 years were evaluated separately.
The receiver operating characteristic curve analysis revealed that a modified Borg scale cutoff point of 2.5 generated an area of 0.80, a sensitivity of 80%, a specificity of 77%, and an accuracy of 0.78 to predict FEV1% lower than 80% in the group of patients older than 9 years. The authors conclude that the modified Borg scale is accurate to assess the subjective perception of dyspnea of children older than 9 years and adolescents with cystic fibrosis. Next, we have the paper by Allen, High Frequency Percussive Ventilation, Pneumotachograph Validation, and Tidal Volume Analysis. The objective of this study was to validate a pneumotachograph for high-frequency percussive ventilation and then exploit flow sensor data to describe the behavior of both low-frequency and high-frequency breaths. Sensor performance was gauged during changes in high-frequency and low-frequency rate and ratio, mean airway pressure, oxygen concentration, heated or heated humidified gas flow, and endotracheal tube diameter. Glass bottle and test lung based conditions provided both an initial source for analog signal calibration and an accepted standard comparator to flow sensor measurement of high frequency and low frequency tidal volume. Pneumotechography proved accurate and precise over an array of tested settings and conditions when analyzing both high frequency and low frequency breaths. High frequency tidal volume and frequency exhibited an exponential relationship. Readily available pneumotachography provided accurate measurements of low frequency and high frequency tidal volume during high frequency percussive ventilation. In the setting of an acute lung injury, typical HFPV settings may deliver injurious tidal volume. and change management in respiratory care, description of a process and outcomes is by Stoller et al. This study describes an intervention that fostered teamwork among four separate respiratory therapy departments within a single hospital. An initial retreat of leaders of the four RT groups indicated a common goal of developing a scorecard by which RT outcomes could be followed and improved. Developing this scorecard involved a business review process that comprised seven facilitated meetings in which the four RT groups developed metrics and targets for RT outcomes in four categories, quality and innovation, service, productivity, and employee engagement. The process of developing the scorecard prompted improvements in quality of RT care. A welcome impact of the business review process was enhanced collaboration and teamwork among the four RT groups, as manifested by sharing educational resources, developing a cross-departmental float pool, and forming a process and group to standardize RT care across all groups. The results of this business review process show that teamwork among four separate RT departments improved and that enhanced outcomes were achieved. Based on this experience, the authors recommend consideration of this business review process as a team building activity that can confer demonstrable clinical benefits. Finally, we have the review article 
Implementing Change in Respiratory Care by Stoller. Though people are generally averse to change, change and innovation are critically important in respiratory care to maintain scientific and clinical progress. This paper reviews the issue of change in respiratory care. Stoller summarizes several available models of organizational and personal change, reviews the characteristics of change-avid respiratory therapy departments, offers an example of a change effort in respiratory care, and then analyzes this change effort as it took place at the Cleveland Clinic using these models. Common features of theories of organizational change include developing a sense of urgency, overcoming resistance, developing a guiding coalition, and involving key stakeholders early. With the understanding that change efforts may seem unduly clean and orderly in retrospect, the models help explain the sustainable success of efforts to implement the respiratory therapist consult service at the Cleveland Clinic. By implication, these models offer value in planning change efforts prospectively. Further analysis of features of change avid respiratory therapy departments indicates 11 highly desired features, of which four that especially characterize change avid departments include having an up-to-date leadership team, employee involvement in change, celebrating wins, and an overall sense of progressiveness in the department. This analysis suggests that undergoing and embracing change is important. To anchor change in the RT profession, greater attention should be given to developing a pipeline of respiratory care clinicians who, by virtue of their advanced training, have the skills to innovate in respiratory care in various ways. I'm back with some commentary on this month's issue. Many persons performing spirometry in primary care have little training in this procedure. Thus, the validity of the test results is questionable. Borg et al. evaluated whether a 14-hour spirometry training course could provide sufficient skill to produce valid results. Interestingly, they found that such a training course alone does not provide sufficient skill to perform spirometry. However, this improved with follow-up training. As Enright states in his editorial, sometimes the situation is no better when spirometry is performed than when it is not because the results are inaccurate or interpreted incorrectly. Enright also points out that there is an opportunity for respiratory therapists to offer spirometry expertise to local primary care providers. Patients with cystic fibrosis commonly use a high-frequency chest wall compression device for airway clearance. In the paper by Campanin, they found that a single-session, higher-pressure, variable-frequency approach resulted in greater sputum expectoration by wet weight, but no other differences compared to the commonly used lower-pressure, mid-frequency settings. As they correctly state, longer-term comparisons are needed to determine whether sustained use of the higher-pressure, variable-frequency settings results in clinically important differences in outcomes. As appropriately suggested by Schechter, the next step would be a larger multi-center long-term trial whose primary endpoints are patient-centered outcomes such as lung function, frequency of pulmonary exacerbations, quality of life, and adherence. Mediastinal and hilar lymph node evaluation with endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle aspiration is being performed with increasing frequency. 
Original reports describe performance of this procedure under general anesthesia. Steinford and Irving evaluated patient satisfaction during endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle aspiration performed under conscious sedation. They found that this technique may safely be performed under conscious intravenous sedation and is associated with very high patient satisfaction. Apayu Shirlia et al. performed a computational study of particle deposition patterns to evaluate the effects of simulated airway diseases on aerosol deposition. Using their model, they found that respiratory diseases may influence the deposition of inhaled drugs in a systematic and predictable manner. This mathematical modeling technique may have clinical relevance to provide a sound scientific basis relating airway diseases and aerosolized drug delivery. The use of breathing exercises with positive pressure devices during hospitalization aims to prevent the development of pulmonary complications or to facilitate recovery from pulmonary conditions. Fiore et al. evaluated the utilization of positive pressure devices for breathing exercises in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Perhaps not surprising, despite a lack of evidence of benefit from breathing exercises with positive pressure in the hospital setting, this type of intervention is extensively used in clinical practice for a wide variety of patients and conditions. Although these data originate from Brazil, it is likely that similar results would occur if such a survey would be conducted in North America. Sun et al. evaluated the effect of educational and psychological counseling on the quality of life of patients with asthma. They found that this intervention improved the quality of life and alleviated psychological distress in patients with asthma. Because this study was conducted in the People's Republic of China, it is important for additional studies to be performed to determine whether similar results would occur in other places around the world. Hummerding et al. evaluated the accuracy of the modified Borg scale to estimate lung impairment measured via FEV1. They found that the modified Borg scale is accurate to assess the subjective perception of dyspnea in children older than 9 years and adolescents with cystic fibrosis. The authors suggest that the modified Borg scale be used regularly in the assessment of these individuals, both for follow-up and for treatment as to the intensity of the training proposed. High-frequency percussive ventilation is a mode for which there is no proven, real-time means of measuring delivered tidal volume. Allen conducted a study to validate pneumotachometry for high-frequency percussive ventilation and then used flow sensor data to describe the behavior of both low-frequency and high-frequency breaths. He found that a readily available pneumotachometer provided accurate measurements of low-frequency and high-frequency tidal volume during high-frequency percussive ventilation. But perhaps most important was the finding that, in the setting of acute lung injury, typical high-frequency percussive ventilation settings may deliver injurious tidal volumes. Stoller et al. describe an intervention that fostered teamwork among four separate respiratory therapy departments within a single hospital. By developing a scorecard by which respiratory therapy outcomes could be followed and improved, teamwork among four separate respiratory therapy departments improved and enhanced outcomes were achieved. The authors suggest that this team-building activity might be effective in other similar institutions.
Though people are generally adverse to change, change and innovation are critically important in respiratory care to maintain scientific and clinical progress. In the review by Stoller, it is suggested that understanding and embracing change is important. To anchor change in the respiratory care profession, greater attention should be given to developing respiratory therapists who, by virtue of their advanced training, have the skills to innovate in various ways. The case report by Larray et al. describes a case of pneumomediastinum in a patient with acute respiratory distress syndrome on pressure support ventilation. As discussed in the editorial by Schmidt and Hess, this case draws attention to the potential for lung injury when high tidal volume is delivered, regardless of the ventilator mode. In a second case report, Lowry describes a safety device to prevent low-pressure alarm malfunction during ventilator disconnection. The teaching case of the month by Chen et al., describes the role of point-of-care arterial blood gas analysis in the early diagnosis of pseudo-hypoxemia and myeloproliferative disorders. Two clinical practice guidelines are published this month. The first is endotracheal suctioning of mechanically ventilated patients with artificial airways, and the second is providing patient and caregiver training. Accompanying these CPGs is an editorial by Restrepo, which discusses the evolution of the guidelines of the American Association for Respiratory Care from reference-based to evidence-based. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.